Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to Partners in Excellence uh, uh, podcast on making a difference. I'm really excited about today's program. Um, we have uh, Simon Minnett, the uh, head of global sales operations for Unify, joining us. Simon and I have spent quite a bit of time kind of getting up to this point, and the ideas and the conversation that Simon and I have had is just fascinating. It, it really is addressing a lot of the issues of complexity that we see every organization facing. So I'm quite excited about the conversation we're going to have. But before I go much further, Simon, welcome. Well, thank you very much, Dave. Um, yes, I'm Simon Manette. So I head up uh, global sales operations at Unify, the leading Unify comms vendor. And I've been with Unify about three years. And previous to that, I've spent a significant amount of time in distribution and also in service industry. Yeah, I mean, you have, your perspective, I think, is really going to be interesting because you have both kind of the, the services, the channel, and kind of the product um, orientation, which, you know, all of us face all of this in, in some varying combinations. So, uh, again, based on our conversations, things, I think we'll have really kind of a, a really powerful conversation. Let me tee up a couple of the issues. I mean, one of the themes that kind of brought us together was what I see is, is kind of probably the leading challenge for sales executives and in, in sales leaders in, in the coming years is how do we manage this overwhelming complexity uh, our people face, our customers face, and, and our partners face, and how do we do this in the face of being driven to produce results. You know, and as, as I've kind of looked at complexity, we have kind of the complexity of our own customers' organizations and how they get things done and what they face in terms of, you know, continuing to do more with fewer resources and, and facing the changes in their markets. The complexity of our product lines, you know, everything's exploding. And if I look at kind of even your market, you see has changed dramatically over the years and, and the, the depth and richness of product alternatives and solutions is really confusing. Our own internal operations and then as Unify does and as many of us do is we can't go to the market by ourselves. We have to go to market through partners um, and, and through channels. Uh, to help achieve our results and you know so as you start blending that all together you almost want to throw up your hands and say how do we deal with this and how do we make progress so maybe just with that as kind of a broad opening how do we deal with this where do we start kind of diving in to start saying here are the things we need to focus on and here's how we start managing this to produce results. And you're right, com complexity abounds in our industry. And in fact, it only ever seems to get worse. And one of the challenges that I wanted to approach when I joined Unify was to actually figure out how I could simplify, particularly kind of the, the go-to-market around the channel. Mm -hmm. But there is, there is complexity in the product there is a complexity in the go-to-market, uh, there's complexity in the programs and through our contracts, um, throughout the business process. And each one of them needs to be addressed differently. And you, you start with product complexity. Mm -hmm. Products evolve over time. They're rarely created from an original idea. So even when you develop a new product, they're usually on the foundation of technology or ideas that are already many years old. Right. But you start with a less than an ideal foundation. And you then add greater features and functionality to that base. And as you do so, you never simplify. You only ever create more complexity. And then you also have to be able to configure it and support it. Um, 
And it is just the, the natural order of things that systems tend towards disorder and chaos. So really, if you want simplicity, you have to stand back, look at your product, look at the, the product roadmap, and design simplicity in right from the start, and then stay very true to that vision of how you keep a, a product and an offering simple. And that's, you know, sometimes that as, as obvious as that appears, I mean, it's much more difficult to do that in practice because of this, <laughs> this thing of we never stop anything that we're doing. We tend to add layers and layers on. And as you can just kind of start thinking about it logically, it not only makes doing this in a product development process not only makes it more difficult for us to sell the product, but it also makes it much more difficult for our customers, you know, from a, a usability point of view, from their understanding and their ability to to really get value from the products. So I think it is important. It, it's you know, to step back and kind of think, what is it that we're trying to do? And sometimes less is more, or or, or sometimes, you know, going back to almost a, 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 a zero starting point and say, what are we really trying to achieve? And what do we incorporate of what we have? And what new do we have to do? But rather than constantly layering on, uh, we have to reframe things like that. Yeah, you can't evolve simplicity, only really a, a fundamental redesign. Yeah. And you're right, uh, nobody ever stops doing anything they're currently doing. I've worked with many vendors over the years who had portfolios of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of items. And entirely re reluctant to ever retire anything off the portfolio because it may have sold something or it may have the potential for another sale. So, so how do you address that? How do you start getting comp companies, you know, these are well-intended people who just are kind of, you know, caught up in maybe momentum. How do you start drawing people's attention to that and changing it? I think you have to take a very hard-nosed approach to simplification. Um, there are clear drivers and clear analysis of the profitability of products and all the support uh, that they require only by being very hard about simplification will you actually drive a simplification and rationalization of the, the product portfolio um, so yeah it is taking a very hard-nosed approach yep yeah. What if you had to look at in your experience in that hard-nosed ap approach, what one or two things might people use as the starting point? If, if there were, you know, two hints that you might suggest to people, what would that be? Would that be maybe product age, product life cycle? Um, um, Maybe I think, I think you have to take a, uh, a holistic the total cost and profitability and revenues associated with the product. Um, only when you've taken that entire uh, holistic view can you actually determine which products are actually driving profitability and driving growth. You're always going to have some cash cows, but eventually those cash cows are going to need to be retired. Right, right, right. So let me throw a monkey wrench into this. I mean, it's hard enough, I think, to rationalize our product lines and continue to simplify that. But, but then you layer on top of that our go-to-market strategies and, and, you know, the customers that we're trying to serve and how we reach those customers with those products. So now you have this, this other dimension that's not just a product-related dimension, but, but, uh, but how we get those products into the market. Um, you know, again, whether it's directly to the customers through our own uh, salespeople or through channels or partners or some other ways. So, so we're starting to lay on, layer on 
levels of, of challenge that's over and above just the product itself. What do you see in, in, in that dimension? Well, most companies start with a direct sales approach. It's the most obvious place to start. And you have technical products being sold by technical people to other technical people, sales supported by sales engineering, uh, and the supporting documentation and configuration tools are complex and designed to be supported by engineers. And that sales approach allows for customization. You can tailor a product to a perfect fit to an end customer demand. And that really drives longevity in the relationship and stickiness of the relationship as well as driving good professional services revenues and the, the, the support revenues. Each sale is quite often a, a project in its own right, backed up with a detailed statement of work. It's a great model, but it's not scalable. Mm -hmm. And as you look to expand into a channel sales model, the sales processes and the support behind that needs to adapt to. You can't rely upon the internal sales relationships, the relationship between sales and product house, and the workarounds to make things happen when you're starting to, to trade through a channel. The, in, a, in a channel relationship, you are distanced from the end customer. Right. And therefore, you are, you're selling to the channel partner, and the channel partner is selling to the end customer. So now your value proposition, your sales process has to change and you have to adapt to that channel sales model. Well, and really, you have to, you have to, yeah, and I say you have, you have to simplify your offering, that highly complex, tailored, bespoke offering, which you can manage in a direct sales needs to become more standardized, more simplified, and all the tools and business processes around that need to follow suit as well. So you're, you're bringing up a huge number of issues here, and let me start splitting them apart. So, you know, part of it is, is um, I've always had the premise, for instance, we come out with some brand new products that are, are perhaps revolutionary in the world, or maybe not revolutionary, but brand new products. But until we understand really kind of what's the model for effectively selling them? How do, who are the right customers? How do we engage them? What does that buying and selling process look like? Um, and until we have that kind of model for success, where in the, the, in the customer maturity life cycle are they? Until we have that well-defined, it becomes very difficult for us to engage partners because our partners tend to expect us to have a formula for success that they can incorporate into their own formula. Yes. Um, I think one of the keys is actually to develop a good channel strategy. You've got to start at the most distant end customer and work backwards. Yep. If you can develop a channel strategy based on a two-tier reseller buying through distribution, then everything else is easy after that. You can manage a one-tier relationship and you can manage the direct sales relationship. It's much easier to work from the most distant relationship and work backwards right. than, it is to work, than it is to work the other way around. But then clearly, fundamentally, clearly, you're asking yourself different questions too, is you're asking how do those customers in that most distant relationship buy who do they buy from, and what's the most effective? You're really defining your route to market in that, that case. Yeah, you need to work out the clear value propositions that the reseller, the two-tier reseller, is uh, combining with other portfolio elements. So, you know, cl clearly, um, IT resellers have a larger portfolio than uh, you have as a direct sales operation. Right. They have they have competing offers, and they may have to develop the whole services stack and solution stack, combining your product with other products, integrating. So their sales approach is very different from a direct sales approach. And once you understand that 
the value proposition to them and the value proposition that they can convey to the end customer, that's what you need to provide to them. You need to enable them to sell your, your proposition. So you just said something here that's really subtle that in my experience a lot of people don't really get as they look at engaging channel partners in, in being very effective. We have to look at our value propositions very differently. One is we have to look at, we, typically we think of what's our value proposition to the end customer. Um, and the, the partner may be the route to getting to that customer. But, but now we have to start thinking at each point in that kind of partner chain, what's our value proposition for that partner? For instance, if we have, have just a, say a simple one step, maybe a, a, a systems integrator or reseller that we're working with, you know, what's our value proposition to that reseller? What, what is it that, that creates and incents and motivates them to say, we want this product line as part of our product portfolio and we can grow with that? And then the next step is to say, what value do we together, both our own company and our partner, create that's meaningful to the customer? Yeah, I mean, the, the logic that applies to, to product design and simplification also applies to that whole approach to the, the channel program design. Mm -hmm. if, if you start with the most complex scenario being in the, the, the two-tier model and work backwards, if you can design that two-tier channel program, everything else is easy. And right. looking, at, looking at the channel model, you need to consider the economic model for the partner and, and throughout the tiers of the channel. Right. You need to look at what kind of technical certification they require. You need to look at things like end-user license agreement and uh, capturing end-user details and vertical market segmentation. You need to look at the, the basics of things like sanction party screening, uh, export controls, how does how do you uh, create leads? Where does channel marketing and uh, marketing development funds? How do you manage leads all the way through to those channel partners? Opportunity management and be transparent through the through the channel. Building all that, it, it is a complex process. But if you get that right at the outset, that's really going to drive value for the channel partners. Right. Right. And so, and again, I think, you know, too often the way we do that is we, we start from an inside out process where we focus on what we're trying to get out of this and push it out to the next layer and the next layer and the next layer, where I think what you're saying, which is, is so different from what I see in practice, is you're actually more successful and it's easier to design that if you start at the further furthermost endpoint and start working your way backwards into that process. Yeah. Take, take, take an outside in view, uh, look at things like uh, ROI models, right. ROI calculators for the partners so they understand the value of the channel program, the value of selling your products and they, they can see the real benefits and how it will drive their profitability. It needs to be a win-win situation. So, so, you know, one of the real things that not a lot of people, I think, pay much attention to is what's our channel partner's business model? How do they make money? You know, how do they want to serve and, and grow their relationships with their customers? And, and too often, I think, we choose the wrong partner or however well-intended we might be with partners, we, don't, we fail to achieve results because their business model is somehow in conflict with ours. The understanding uh, the channel landscape is extremely important. So selecting the right partners to work with, when the, the key is in the name partner, you're partnering with someone. Mm -hmm. So it must be a mutually beneficial relationship. Now, understanding the economic model for that partner, understanding the um, what percentage of wallet share that you represent, 
which are the vendors they are partnering with, uh, whether their overall business is growing or declining, and whether your business is growing and declining as, as a part of that. Um, these are all important things to understand in analyzing your existing partners and also analyzing uh, people to, to partner with. And if you look at somebody that's relatively new to doing this, what are the two or three biggest mistakes you see them? The typical mistakes I see people making um, is recruiting partners without being selective. Uh, Excuse me. I'm, let me ask you. I'm just. I've just turned everything. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, so if you could start that again. <laughs> Thank you, Simon. The typical mistakes I see when building out a channel uh, ecosystem is not being selective enough in yeah. recruiting the right partners, not focusing on their onboarding and the time to revenue. So, and it's not uh, enabling those partners and really hand-holding them through the first deals. The key thing of any new relationship is ensuring that it becomes a successful relationship and it's a relationship that grows and develops. So you've got to be uh, cautious at the outset, ensuring that you onboard the right partners and then manage that early life relationship to ensure it develops into a successful relationship. Yeah, the sooner they start seeing success, the more, you know, it's just human nature, the more they're likely to say, I want to do more of this. And so I think mm -hmm. that attention to the onboarding and the time to revenue or time to their first success is really critical. And again, I, I see too often, because we're driven by our own, our own internal objectives, we miss that, and so we have misfires as we, we start uh, uh, implementing our channel programs. Let me go back and ask, j again, for just a couple of quick tips and advice. As we're looking to be selective with our partners, what are your top two or three points of advice to choosing the right partner? I guess it's understanding the motivation of the partner, uh, understanding their their skill set, um, so understanding their, their capabilities. It's really understanding their own business plan, their, their growth, um, their capabilities, and finding that match. Um, it's also ensuring that you're looking at the the coverage and capacity planning. Right. So there is no point in being uh, over-distributed, over-covered over, uh, over in a particular territory. You need to ensure you've got the correct match of opportunity and skills and, and capability in, a, in any segment in the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, and it's, I, it's, it's only fair to the partners to give them a realistic opportunity of uh, growing a territory. It's interesting. A number of years ago, we got involved with uh, a, a very large company whose whose primary route to, to market was through the channels, and they had were experiencing lots of, of problems. And we started doing some assessments, and we found out that. 85% of the time they were competing against another partner selling the same product. Um, and, you know, they were starting to say, we can't be successful. They were, in fact, going to the competitors' products because they had a better ability to be successful, and they were clearly over-distributed. And I, I think that coverage model is something you want the right number, but just the right number. You want to give everybody as much chance to be successful as you possibly as they possibly can be. There will be some overlap. There will be some contention, but you don't want it to be so large that it you know they're competing against uh, with your product against each other rather than against the real competition. Yeah, I mean I think you start with a 
um, an opportunity map you understand where your opportunities lie you figure out what coverage you have you profile the kind of partners that you need mm -hmm. um, you engage with those partners you, you understand their willingness to to invest in the relationship and you can pretty quickly tell the people who are willing to invest in building a business plan with you which has measurable goals and targets where you're both mutually invested in the relationship you can see some tangible results yeah a lot of it's parallel to you know hiring the best salespeople that we want we want to look at you know uh, what's what's the profile of the ideal salesperson? Likewise, we want to look at what's the profile of the ideal uh, channel partner. Let me move on to the next step. So we we've gotten the right partner. We've gotten the right coverage model. What are the, the most critical things in this rapid onboarding and getting them to reducing that time to success or that time to revenue for them? I think early um, engagement uh, from channel account managers or territory account managers to, to build that relationship and start those regular contact points, ensuring that you've got the technical certifications or the technical skilling, um, becoming familiar with the sales uh, in enablement uh, tools and capabilities. So it's really, I think, in the early stage, it needs to be quite a, um, a high-touch relationship mm -hmm. to actually ensure that partners are understanding the opportunity, um, are having their questions answered, and actually are progressing on a measured path towards certification, towards uh, creating op opportunities. And actually then also maybe hand-holding them through with uh, seven years through their first opportunities such until they get the confidence to actually be self-sufficient in, uh, in handling new opportunities. That's one of the things I've seen a lot is, is, you know, we presumably have a model for success in, in, in selling these products so that hand-holding and, and working with them on a few early specific deals, kind of having them learn along with you and watch what you're doing so that they can take those practices and start emulating it themselves really ramps uh, their, their learning cycle and ramps their ability to be successful. Good. So now I have the, the channel in place. I have them on board. You know, what are the next steps in terms of really driving um, productivity through the channel and driving richness in the relationships and, and then dealing with the inevitable kind of challenges or disagreements or conflicts that might come up? in those relationships? Um, clearly, the more we can do in terms of clarifying our value proposition, simplifying our product offering, simplifying the, the training and certification to enable partners to be able to sell, they are all you know, important in enabling our partners to actually starting to just thrive in the model. Mm -hmm. Setting targets, setting goals, and actually then supporting uh, the partners with any technical challenges. I think uh, clearly also um, working together on creating leads, uh, managing leads uh, through uh, marketing programs, and converting those leads into opportunity. And then yeah. you know, track, tracking who is being successful in converting those opportunities and you know, investing more in the partners that um, can quickly grow and, and develop and then you know, coaching the others who perhaps are struggling. Right, right. In prior to, to this conversation, you and I also talked a little bit about you know, some concepts around 
ease of doing business, uh, you know, some things around scorecarding and those sorts of things. Um, what are some of the things that you've seen being very effective in, in terms of this? How do we ease their ability to do business with us and, and consequently the end customer's ability to do business with uh, the com combination? Well, I think it's very important to focus on the ease of doing business because ease of doing business really translates to cost of doing business. Um, one of the key things to do is to start measuring that complexity, particularly in from the, the vendor side, um, setting benchmarks and uh, establishing scorecards and setting targets for reduction in complexity, which translates to reduction in cost. Mm -hmm. now, I was working in distribution for many years and I, I took two approaches. One was based around a vendor scorecard and the other was based around an activity-based costing profitability analysis. Yeah. So looking first at the, the vendor scorecard, we had perhaps 300 different vendors and we'd, we'd focus particularly on our top vendors and we would score those vendors on a series of metrics, things like portfolio pricing, master data, order management, logistics, rebates and uh, claims, billing accuracy, marketing and MDF. And each one of those sections could break down into a further 10 subsections. And we would define how we would score the vendor against each one of those, setting a, a, a specific targets of what, what was a, a, an acceptable score. And the key thing was we would perform this on a regular basis and we would share the data with the vendor, their own data together with how the, the average performer and what the best in class. And it's amazing what a little bit of peer pressure can do to help a, um, uh, a supplier or a vendor actually improve their capability. Everybody's interested to understand how they rank against everybody else. And if you can provide that insight, it provides a stimulus to actually improve and drive change. Well, and, and probably the, the th well, well, from say a distribution point of view or a, a partner point of view, you know, getting that kind of input from your partners enables you to change, to drive the entire program and your entire effectiveness. Absolutely. Um, you know, not just with that partner, but if you have partners that are investing in helping make you better, you know, kind of what goes around comes around. You you get better not only for the partner, but for all your other partners, and, and they get better for you. So it's, it's really interesting. Uh, one of the guys on our team used to manage, uh, be the CEO of a mid-size um, distribution partner in scientific instrumentations and he was a physicist by training and he <laughs> naturally was driven to he created this scorecard uh, in this activity-based costing kind of thing and, and so he really was doing the same kind of analysis unfortunately as, as a physicist he tried to reduce it all to a mathematical equation but one of the things I always thought was really unique and that is he also had this factor he called the hassle factor. <laughs> you know, sometimes the numbers seemed okay and the scorecard seemed okay, but there was something in terms of just the hassle or the people factor of doing business with the partner. And he'd sit down and on a quarterly basis with all the partners and, you know, one of the discussions was the hassle factor. And if that hassle factor didn't get reduced, uh, he'd terminate the relationship with them. It ended up, I think, over the long term, costing him a lot more. And the, the second tool I alluded to, I think you can actually measure the hassle factor. Exactly. I, I think that's this concept around ease of doing business. We, we took... Um, a regular dump, a quarterly dump of all the reseller 
and vendor profitability analysis. So we started with a, uh, a complete dump of every sales order, purchase order, every shipment, invoice, rebate claim. And we layered on top of that this activity-based costing analysis. So we looked at how much time our buyers and our product managers were spending with the vendors, how much senior management time with the vendors, how much time salespeople were spending on accounts and sales management, how much logistics time was spent by vendor or by customer shipping orders. So we actually had a complete and thorough picture of all of our both direct and SG&A costs. And with that, we could then cut and dice the profitability of any customer or any vendor and then go in into each of those and look at the detail of what activity was driving the cost. And it produced some quite surprising results. You would see high margin vendors who were actually loss making or loyal customers yeah. who were consuming huge amounts of resources and dragging their profitability down. So you could really dive into the process complexity to see what element, what, what, what was the hassle factor that was driving down the profits. And then by doing this on a regular basis, you could figure out, as you change things, how you actually improve the metrics. Yeah. But I, think, I, I think it's a, a, that kind of insight can really help companies drive how to reduce their complexity, but also uh, focus on what element of their suppliers or even their customers is driving complexity. So let me turn the crank on this one more time. So, so you've been talking a lot from the perspective of, say, some of your past roles where you've actually been the partner in, in the channel and distribution. Now that you're on the vendor or supplier side, how do you how do you I'm sure one is you're doing these similar kinds of evaluations of your partners to say, are they in fact adding value to what you're trying to deliver ultimately to the customer? Uh, what's the hassle factor of dealing with them? And how do you look at that? And then how do you look at encouraging your partners to develop those evaluations of you uh, and, and maybe some of your competitors so that you can develop this iterative cycle of each of you constantly improving and simplifying the way you work with each other and how you present yourself to customers? Well, I have actually shared um, some of the concepts with my larger, particularly distribution um, mm -hmm. partners, enabling them to score and rank uh, ourselves as a vendor and then offer me the, the insight as to how I compare. Because that then gives me the opportunity to figure out which are the metrics, which are the processes that I need to improve on. So I think yeah. it's actually it's, it's sharing the approach, sharing the knowledge, and then partnering um, with an open mind to improving any element of the business. One of my goals is to improve the ease of doing business because the, the more you can improve the ease of doing business, the more you can improve your partner's uh, profitability and the, um, the value of the combined relationship. That's fantastic. So now let me transition a little bit into your current role because you run sales operations for Unify and you have your sales organization, your channel managers who are working with your partners on a day-to-day -day basis and sometimes on a deal-to-deal -deal basis. What's your role in, as you look at trying to achieve these goals, what's, what does sales operations do both for channel managers within your own organization and for your partner ecosystem to really drive one that the quality of that thinking of trying to improve and tune and get better for each other and in, in, in their ability to, to together execute on that. 
Well, I think sales operations has a tremendous opportunity to reduce business complexity. And I quite like the Lean Six Sigma approach. Um, things like value stream mapping, cause and effect charts, you know, looking at the five whys, structured brainstorming, process mapping. I, I don't think in our industry we actually need to get down to full-blown statistical analysis. I think yeah. taking those kind of Six Sigma skills and taking a common sense approach and empowering people, you can look at business processes and figure out where you can eliminate the non-value-adding activities and those that delay decision-making and responsiveness. What I, what I see is companies are replacing management with controls and complexity. <laughs> key, the key is to hire good people, train them, coach them, align them with your goals and let them work under the, the spirit of a governance model rather than the, the letter of a governance model. Yeah. Too many controls limit growth and creativity. So, you know, sales ops can help by measuring what is important. That's not necessarily what is easy. Sales ops can help by uh, devising and uh, aligning compensation systems, both for internal staff and for partners, that align with the goals of the business and also ensures that the align, the, there is alignment between the goals of each element of the organization so you're not forcing the, the organization into conflict by having opposing goals. Right. Right. Outstanding. Outstanding. So as you look at, at, at putting all this together, in, in driving growth for, you know, for your own business and for your partner's business. Um, any other kind of things we should be paying attention to? You've, you've highlighted a huge amount already, but any things that we've missed so far? Well, you mentioned growth. Um, so complexity, bureaucracy, controls are a barrier to growth and degrade sales efficiency, but they're not an enabler of growth. And again, sales operations can be an enabler for growth, particularly working with marketing and marketing intelligence. It comes back to identifying those market opportunities. We, we talked about the, you know, the coverage and the capacity uh, of the channel partners. So developing a uh, coverage and capacity plan, uh, identifying the gaps and helping sales uh, uh, and their skills and their capabilities. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of the things. Just if I look at sales operations in general, whether it's through a direct field organization or through inside sales organizations, channels or hybrids of those, is one of the critical things I see about sales operations is you probably see all these challenges in how they mix together sooner than anybody else does. If I'm a regional vice president and I'm focused on driving my sales team, whether it's a channel sales team or a direct field sales team, you know, to hit their goals and hit their numbers, I'm only seeing part of what's going on and, and you know, the, the rush of day-to-day -day business may kind of block me from being able to see everything that, that's going along in the whole system. Uh, you know, so, so I tend to think that sales operations, also because of your relationship with the rest of the organization, with marketing, with product management, product development, with customer service, and so on, you start seeing where all these different things are starting to interface with each other and create conflict that we would not see separately. And, and, and again, I think, you know, as I look at kind of the future of how do we drive and refine our impact in, in sales, I think a lot of that leadership is really coming from sales operations.
Let me shift to one final area is, you know, the worlds that we're, we live in are constantly changing. And particularly if I look at, say, Unify or a lot of the technology worlds that we live in and even some of the other worlds is our business models are changing. Our product and solution sets are changing. We're looking at, at moving from, you know, in my day we sold a lot of enterprise software and licensed software or, or products and and all they may have been very complex and long cycles but business is changing we're going more towards cloud offerings or as a service offerings and those change both the skills that we need uh, the partners that we need the programs and they I mean they're fundamentally different business models um, yeah yeah, there is a fundamental shift in the market as we move from CapEx based on-premise solutions to cloud-based OpEx offerings. The product complexity is reduced with public cloud offerings because the offer is more standardized and simplified. Right. Uh, and, much of, and much of the traditional technical expertise that would have been required to deploy a solution is replaced by a service that can be auto-provisioned in minutes. So resellers need to adjust to a new value proposition, one based on things like application integration, business process optimization, uh, vertical market specialism. There's a shift from selling technology to selling a solution based on business outcomes. So the, the buyer or the decision maker has changed. It's changed from the IT manager to the typically the line of business leader in an organization. And he is focusing on different requirements and different metrics in his decision making. Therefore, the sales process and the sales proposition from the reseller needs to change. So, so I mean, that drives some really interesting questions is that Either the, because everything's changing about who the customer is and what it is they're buying and how they're buying and the value they're trying to get, is it, it means in, that either many of your traditional resellers really need to change their approach to market or you have to change resellers to people that already understand that approach to market. And, 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 and have built their, their, their businesses around this new, new revised approach. Yeah, and as we shift uh, to reselling cloud through the channel, we need to support and enable our channel partners to make that shift in their business as well. It's a transformational journey for the partners in the value proposition. It is not just a new product launch. So what we're doing is we're identifying the best practices, the, the best practice target operating model for a cloud reseller. And then we're going to offer an online capability assessment that looks at the skills of the reseller across multiple dimensions. Yeah. Things like their ability uh, to manage uh, the appropriate commercials and contracts relating to the provision of cloud services, the ability to manage service level agreements. Do they have the right business processes and tools to support it? Do they have, uh, can they measure the appropriate cloud metrics? Can they support billing, uh, consumption billing? Yeah. Do they have the right service management uh, capabilities? Have they even looked at the financial business modeling, the impact of cloud on their cash flow and even what that may mean to their business valuation or their, their credit availability. You've got to look at things like sales compensation models. How do you yeah. incentivize your own people to sell this? Um, and how to shift the conversation of the end customer from one about technology to selling on business outcomes. So the intention is really to develop this target operating model, develop a, an assessment program, and then each reseller gets a detailed roadmap to assess their training needs and the assets 
and provide them the assets they need to take them on that journey to reach that uh, ideal target operating model. So every, every journey is unique um, and is aimed to enhance uh, their, their business overall and how they develop their services portfolio and, and ultimately improve their, their margins. So we are I'm saying we, we're, we're launching a new uh, cloud uh, service but with that we're also launching a new approach to enabling our partners to take advantage of, of that product offering. That's, that's an amazing kind of journey you outlined there. I mean, uh, to be very honest, I haven't spoken to many folks that have really kind of looked at it that thoughtfully and are providing the tools, whether it's the assessments and the roadmap and those things to help the partners migrate and change their business and change their business model. Um, you know, it's it's, but that migration is critical. If they if they can't do it, then it impacts you and your ability to achieve what you want to do in the marketplace as well. So, uh, but it's it's really I'm really again I, I'm a little bit taken aback because I haven't heard anybody talk at the level of detail that that you've just spoken about in in the last few moments. Yeah, I mean, cloud sales really does have the potential to reduce complexity, and we we started with a theme of how do you reduce complexity. Yeah. So, cloud service position uh, proposition really does have the capability to reduce complexity. You're no longer buying a product; you are buying a service. Right. But with that comes a required partners through that journey, which is going to ensure that it is uh, mutually successful. Yep, yeah, absolutely. So as you look in your crystal ball, is we have, I think, many years of helping migrate our partners into this as a service or this cloud kind of transformation, both our own organizations, but in our partners as well. As you look to the challenges that might follow that. Does anything pop to mind right now, or, or are we so consumed with this challenge for the next few years that, that focusing on the cloud and as a service transformation is enough? I guess one of the challenges is there is an inevitability to the progressive and pervasive expansion of cloud but it will not be all-consuming and it will never be as fast as people expect it to be. Yeah. Um, I was involved in uh, developing a, a hosted voice proposition uh, back in 2006 and every consultant, every service provider that I talked with was convinced that the whole market and business model would have completely shifted by 2010. And 10 years later, <laughs> um, the, <laughs> the market is only getting or hasn't even reached the point um, at which they said it would be back in 2009-2010. But things do take longer. Uh, On-prem solutions are not going away. Um, but cloud is certainly here and it has a real uh, place in the market, uh, it has a real value and it will become increasingly more pervasive. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think we're still kind of discovered, we're still almost at the tip of the iceberg with really understanding and implementation. I think we hear the stories of the early adopters or kind of the sexy things that are happening. But if we look across the world at the, the thousands and thousands of different customer environments, um, is we still have a huge opportunity in front of us and a long way to go. Um, uh, which creates challenges for all of us in full employment for all of us in the coming years. But you've only got to look at how uh, different elements of the market, um, say, um, 
how you consume media and entertainment at home has changed only in the, the last few years to see how things have changed dramatically. Um, children do not watch terrestrial TV anymore. They only watch on-demand. Um, there has, which completely changes all the advertising uh, models in our industry, uh, where the revenues come from, and how uh, content is uh, funded. So there's been some dramatic shifts, and those kind of shifts will also uh, extend throughout the business world as well. That's, as, as I wrap this up, I, this may be a bit of an unfair question because it just came to mind, but as you personally look to where you learn and innovate, where you get idea, different ideas that you might look at applying within Unify or within the Unify ecosystem of its customers and its partners, are there any specific places? So, for an example, while our business is strictly very kind of high-end B2B focus, uh, where we get a lot of our lessons is actually in the fashion industry because there's some unique things that happen in the fashion industry. And if we start saying, how do I take those things and adapt them to challenges that we see in complex B2B business environments. Do you, where do you look just for personal inspiration and those kind of ideas that you maybe need to mull over a little bit and say, how do we apply these within Unify or within business in general? Well, areas that I'm personally particularly interested in, I think will have a dramatic impact. Uh, artificial intelligence, yeah. um, and as you apply that into the telephony market, um, uh, voice recognition, AI-powered agents who can have a real dialogue, like the Alexas and the series, but are at a uh, at a new level of chatbot who can actually um, take the place of human operators. I think the call centers will change dramatically over yeah. the next five years um, as people actually have a preference to deal with automated call handling than actually talk to an individual. And of course, you you won't have the same wait times or um, uh, challenges often of dealing with a person if you can actually have a instantaneous dialogue with someone who can solve majority of your problems uh, dynamically. Right, right. Yeah, well, I think of last week I was on a software helpline and not only my, my wait times, but the number of transfers and the number of times I had to re-explain my problem. <laughs> Those things will all go away with, with some of these new technologies. So, so I think artificial intelligence is and chat, chatbots are a very interesting area in the, in the world of uh, voice and uh, unified communications. Um, big data, big data analytics is always a, a very interesting area to look at. The, the analytics and understanding uh, the trends and the, and the data, delving into the huge amount of knowledge that is created when everybody is online and using unified communication tools provides a, a wealth of information and data that you can then mine. Yep. Super. Outstanding. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed this conversation. I, I mean, I, I can think of dozens of questions to drill down deeper into each topic, but I think we'll, we'll stop now and, and 
and uh, and perhaps maybe continue at a future date going into some of these. But I've really learned a lot, and I, I really, you know, again, some of the things that have struck me is your, you know, your thoughtfulness around and some of the tools that you're providing around this business transformation from our kind of old world environment to this uh, cloud environment. Uh, that's uh, I've learned a lot from that discussion. Thanks so much. If people wanted to reach out and uh, and contact you, Simon, I, I assume probably LinkedIn is is possibly the best way to to Link, LinkedIn is good. You. Yes. Yes. Super. Um, and I'm uh, also on Twitter. Super. Outstanding. What's your Twitter handle? Um, at sminet, S-M-I-N-E-T-T. Great. Thanks so much, Simon. I've really enjoyed this. Okay. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks, Dave.